Thank you and good morning, everyone. I hope you all had great weeks. And uh, it was a huge blessing, as Pastor Tom mentioned, to be able to worship with a lot of you guys in person last week at Parks. And I'm already looking forward to our next in-person worship. Uh, I really hope that this virtual season uh, comes to a close sooner than later. And yeah, I do think it's looking promising that we don't have to have a cap and things like that anymore. So I do really hope that the majority, if not all of us, can be together in person worshiping on June 6th. And also always a joy uh, to have some of you guys join after our, for our Sunday Q&A. It's always a burden for the preacher because there's so much juice in the text that we're not able to get to. So that is a precious opportunity to extract more together as a church. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, as we've been sharing, we've been going through a series to the book of Genesis. And in the uh, past few weeks, more specifically, we've been learning about the less than perfect character named Jacob. And today, to put it simply, we're going to look at arguably the most life changing and important event in Jacob's life. Now, to briefly set the scene for the text that we're going to be reading from uh, last week, if you were there or if you weren't able to join us, we saw to set the context that Jacob, he's essentially in between two places. He had left his uncle Laban's place, which he was at for 20 years, and he had raised a fortune and a family. He's married with 11 children, and he's now returning back to the land of Canaan, which he was afraid to go back to because he has a very angry brother in Esau, who he thinks is going to murder him because he stole his birthright. But nevertheless, out of obedience to God, he packs up his bags, uproots his family, and is headed on his way home. And the majority of the first half of Genesis 32 makes it crystal clear that Jacob is terrified to return home. Because I don't know if you guys have ever burned bridges with someone, but even if time passes, some of those things just, they stay, they linger. And so even though it's been 20 years, he doesn't know if Esau's still angry or not. And so we can't get into all the details, but just to skim over, he goes through all these elaborate plans of how he wants to appease his brother ahead of time and to send all these gifts just in case he's angry. And we actually see for the first time recorded in scripture that Jacob actually prays. I mean, how desperate has he gotten that he's now actually pleading and praying to God? And his main topic of prayer is, God, can you deliver me from Esau? That's what he's asking for. He wants deliverance from his brother Esau so he doesn't murder him, essentially. And in a way, the text we're going to read captures, in a sense, God's response and answer to Jacob's prayer for deliverance. Although we're going to quickly see it is not in the way that Jacob would have imagined. And I would say by extension, for a lot of us, when we pray for deliverance, God often has a very different yet more profound way to deliver us from what we want. And so Genesis chapter 32, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis 32. We'll read from verse 22 through verse 31. Genesis 32, verse 22 to 31. And as you're turning there again, the context is he is on his way back to Canaan. He is on his, well on his way. And we're going to set ourselves in this uh, somewhat well-known scene. So Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. This is the reading of God's word. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place 
Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. What an interesting text. All takes place in one evening. And, you know, just by way of intro, you know, one of the sports I've come to love over the years that I never thought I would is softball. And actually, one of the things I missed most this past year was being able to play softball with some people at the church, just to throw around, just to hit around and practice batting. And the day that I knew I was going to take softball a little bit more seriously was when I invested in and bought a legit softball glove. Prior to that moment, I just used hand-me-downs or I would borrow from people. And I remember the reason I ended up buying the one I did, which was over $100, which to me was a lot of money, was because I used someone else's glove and it was just different. <laughs> it felt different than the hand-me-down I was using. I could tell it was not cheap quality. I could tell it was shaped differently. It was constructed better. And it just felt like what a softball glove should be. And so what I did was I wasn't original at all. I ended up buying the same exact model, the same exact glove. But to my disappointment, when it arrived, it did not feel nearly as good. It was extremely stiff. It was very rigid. Even though it was the same glove, it looked the same. I made sure it brought the same brand. Something was just different to the point that I thought I had been given a fake. So I was about to you know, return it and complain to the seller. But when I asked around, almost everyone who knows anything about softball told me the same response, which is, oh, the, here's why, Sam. It's because the glove is not properly broken in. It's not broken in. Now, if you didn't know, softball gloves, because I didn't know, particularly expensive ones, they don't come necessarily primed and optimal out of the box, per se. There's this kind of long and tedious process that you have to go through where you have to break in your glove to soften it, to mold it, to shape it, in order for it to essentially be usable to its full potential. And it is an interesting process if you don't know what's going on, because you kind of have to expose your glove to heat, you have to repeatedly beat it, kind of like a mallet, to soften the leather. You have to constantly stretch it. Some people forcefully all day are molding it and essentially wrestling their glove to best fit their hand, to best capture the softball when it lands. And one thing I remember constantly reading that everyone would say is there are no shortcuts <laughs> to properly breaking in a softball glove. And what's amazing about that reality is that because of the nature of what breaking in is, the personal nature makes it so that no two gloves are technically the same, even though they look similar. And so I remember I had so much joy when I broke in my glove, because in a way it went from just being a glove to being my glove fit to my hand. I don't think too deeply about this analogy, but I share this because in a similar way, what God does in our text today is he is in the process of completing what I would call his breaking in of Jacob of softening his heart to learn to lean on him and to trust on God fully and not on himself. And I would argue that in a way, by extension, God actually lovingly breaks in all true Christians to mold them and to shape them, to draw them closer to him in character and in relationship. And just like there is no shortcut for softball gloves, I think scripture points to the fact that the human heart without the intervention of God is so hardened and so sinfully stiff out the box that God actually often needs to lovingly break us in order to meaningfully get through to our hardened hearts so that the gospel will open our eyes to see the spiritual reality of our helplessness. We are helpless without the intervention of God. And so for our message today, based on the text, I want to share just three exhortations and encouragements that we can hopefully apply in our lives as we pursue spiritual renewal 
and as we pursue to be broken in, in a sense, as God's people. So the three are this. Number one, we need to get alone with God. Get alone with God. Number two, we need to wrestle with God in order to cling to him and not resist him. Cling to him and not resist him. And third and last, we need to embrace our spiritual limps as God's blessing in our life. So first, get alone with God. Uh, I'm confident now more than ever that the practice of truly being alone is a lost art for probably everyone here. And by alone, I don't merely mean that you're just by yourself with no one around. I'm referring to the state of actually being unplugged mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically from the noise of everyday life for the purpose of not just vegging out, but actual meditation, deep reflection. The more and more I look at the state of my soul and a lot of the Christian brothers and sisters I see around me, I think something that has changed drastically in the formation of disciples in the church from 10 years ago to now is it is infinitely more difficult to actually be alone and to meditate, whether on yourself, whether on God's word, whether on how God is working in your life. I personally always found it interesting and telling that Jesus on his earthly life always made it a point to meet with God alone in desolate places. And I definitely think there is something for us to extract from his example that we may be sorely missing in our day and age today. I'm not sure about you, but in my normal day, there is rarely a moment when I'm not listening to something or tuned into something. Uh, If you're like me, the moment you wake up, the first thing you naturally gravitate towards is you grab your phone. When you're doing chores, I'm listening to a podcast. When I'm sitting to wind down, I automatically turn something on in the background on Netflix. And I'm not even sure when this became a thing, but I noticed, I don't know if it's like for you, but I noticed a lot of people get anxiety when they forget to take their phone to the bathroom. I don't know when that became a thing, but it kind of became a thing. And so ironically, one of the rare moments and pockets of time when I'm actually truly alone is when I go to the restroom and I don't have my phone. It's just like this eerie silence as I'm just sitting there and I'm like super uncomfortable. I bring this all up because Jacob's life and changing encounter with God happens in the setting and context of him being alone in every sense of the word. Look at verse 22 again. The same night it says in the evening, he arose. And what he does is he takes his whole family and all his belongings. And they're at this small river, the ford of the Jabbok. (laughs) Jabbok sounds funny. It's like a Star Wars land. But he sends them over. So they're all gone now. And Jacob is by himself, right? In verse 23, he says, he took them, sent them across the stream with everything else that he had. And verse 24 begins by saying, Jacob was left alone. Now, we can only assume that Jacob, with his two wives and 11 children, probably rarely, if ever, had a moment of truly being alone. And of all the context and the situations that God could have come to meet and encounter Jacob, he clearly chooses the specific moment that Jacob is alone. Not just physically, but I would argue emotionally and spiritually as well. Why? Because remember, he is caught in the fear ahead of him of facing his brother who may very well murder him the next day. But he's also relationally owned because he has cut ties with things behind him with his uncle Laban and all of that. So he's kind of floating in a sense. He is very, very alone. And what we can glean from this small detail is that God tends to meet and encounter his people in situations where I would argue they have the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional space that oftentimes can only be created by being alone. Now, I try to practice what I preach. So last night, I told Angela, my wife, hey, I'll be back. 
And I uh, just walked around the neighborhood to, to actually try to practice this. I took a walk around my neighborhood. And well, usually when I take a walk, if I ever do, uh, I listen to music. Or I take a podcast to listen to this time. I literally took nothing. And I wanted to take an extended time to just walk around in, alone in complete silence. It was late at night. It was concentrated, intentional silence. And man, I will say this in a strange paradoxical way. Sometimes there's nothing louder than the sound of silence. Because it draws out your deepest suppressed thoughts and emotions and frustrations and anxieties. I would argue some people subconsciously feel this when their thoughts start racing before bed. Why? Because that is a small pocket of the day where you're actually alone to yourself. And so some people will just take sleeping pills. Others will just drown it out with their phone. But whatever the case is, what we see here is that not just physically, but I think some of us like Jacob, we may be feeling alone also. Maybe because we're in the midst of a trial or a difficult situation. I mean, obviously, in the case of Jacob, it was the fear of having to face his brother Esau and what that would entail. But I would ask you, maybe for some of you, you feel alone, maybe in your struggles with a particular sin. Maybe you feel alone in a specific life circumstance that you just feel no one understands or no one can relate to, or worst of all, no one cares to ask about. I've been there. I'm sure some of you might be there. And I think what a lot of us tend to do in today's age is immediately seek to fill that feeling of being alone with the readily accessible noise of today's culture, whether that be social media or just busying ourselves with mindless tasks. But I would say based on our text, I would argue that, you know, in moments where you're alone, especially in moments of trial and hardship, those are those precious moments where God often desires to meet with you, to grow you spiritually. And therefore, the best way to meet with God, oftentimes, I would say, is alone. So a simple intro to say the first simple step would often precede spiritual brokenness and renewal is this. We need to get alone with God. And I would say in today's day, it's not going to happen accidentally. It's not. And I would challenge you, man, last night I was I was kind of shocked to see how simply being alone draws out so many things that you would not otherwise know. And so that is my first exhortation, which leads to the second and the main one, which is we need to wrestle with God, not to resist him, but to cling to him. What do I mean by this? So you would think in Jacob's moment of feeling alone and vulnerable that God should show up and comfort him. Right. And encourage him. Like, if you're feeling alone, the picture of a nice, loving, benevolent God would be that, oh, are you doing okay? I mean, Jacob, a couple verses earlier, he's literally prayed to God, can you, can, can you deliver me, God? Can you be faithful? Can you help me from my troubles? But instead, we see something very strange happen in the text. And most commentators say, this is evidence that this is not a man-made, made-up God. Because why would a man create a God like this, which is in verse 24, in response to Jacob's loneliness and his prayer, it says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So weird. I would argue this is one of the strangest texts in scripture if you really see what's going on. I mean, imagine you're Jacob, okay? You have traveled a long journey to be obedient to God, to head towards Canaan. You have sent all your family, all your belongings over a small river, and it is evening. Let's just say for hypothetic sake, uh, hypothetic is not a word, but hypothetically, 10 p.m. It's 10 p.m. It is evening. You're exhausted. You're burdened. And you're thinking about, man, I'm going to meet my potential murderous brother in a, in a matter of days. And then a random, mere, a random man just comes behind you. He starts chokeholding you. And then you just start wrestling. 
so weird. It's like the more I thought about it, the stranger it was. It is a bizarre and dramatic scene. Now, I'm not sure how many of you tried wrestling before. If you have siblings, I guarantee you probably have. Uh, my brother was a wrestler. So I got wrestled a lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, I couldn't fight back a lot. Any new move he learned, he practiced it on me. And I'll tell you this, even professional fighters and wrestlers can only last maybe a few rounds of like five minutes each before they are done. They are physically exhausted. We're told that Jacob puts up a fight all night long, aka at least to several hours. And just to throw a little more color to that, I just I cracked up by myself as I was thinking about this. A little fun fact that might give you a little fun perspective and why this is impressive. Jacob is over 90 years old at this time. <laughs> Could you imagine like your great grandpa just wrestling a dude like for hours on end? That's what's going on here. He's not this young and spry guy. He's over 90 years old. Now, quick spoiler. You're going to find out in a few verses. It's not just any guy. It's not just any random man. It is God that Jacob is wrestling. So 90-year-old Grandpa Jacob is wrestling God form, in the form of man. And the natural question we got to ask is, why is God wrestling with Jacob? And why doesn't he just own this guy? Why doesn't he just dominate him? Here's why. God is trying to wrestle Jacob into something. He's not trying to destroy him or defeat him. He's trying to wrestle Jacob into realizing how stubborn and how resistant this guy actually is. In the same way that my softball glove needed to be repeatedly molded and broken slowly, gradually over time. If I just did it, tried to do it all at once, it would not have the same effect. In that same way, this wrestling match is a physical representation and manifestation of how Jacob had been living his whole life up to that point, which is what? Trying to fight out of his own strength, out of his own wisdom, out of his own sufficiency. Look at Jacob's entire narrative that we've gone over the past couple of weeks. He's basically been fighting and resisting everyone in his life. He's been resisting and fighting his father, Isaac. He resisted and fought his uncle, Laban. He's prepared to resist and fight his brother, Esau. And so he was more than prepared to fight this random guy all night. But something interesting happens and a big shift happens in Jacob's approach to his wrestling. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So right off the bat, we see a quick turn of events. Okay, this ain't just any man because a simple touch of Jacob's hip socket and he dislocates it. Now, the word for touch there, it is not like a, a forceful push or like some sort of like MMA push you know, pull or punch or anything like that. It's literally, it's a funny image. It is like the lightest of touches. That's what it means. It's like, whoop. So this is clearly supernatural strength that is being displayed here. And in verse 26, it tells us, then he said, the guy says, let me go for the day is broken. So the sun's coming up now. And he says, I got to go. Let me go. If you're curious why he says that, stick around for Q&A. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, this story moves really fast, so we got to kind of slow it down to figure out what's going on. Something happens after Jacob realizes how powerful this man is. And commentators will say this is most likely the turning point where he's kind of realizing, oh, this isn't just any man. This is probably God, or at least the very least an angel of God. And there's an obvious shift in his approach because prior to his hip dislocation, Jacob actually thinks he can resist and overpower this guy. That's why he's fighting him. That's why he's trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. 
But when he realizes that he is outmatched and he concludes that this ain't just any man, but this is God, he adjusts, if I can put it this way, his fighting style from trying to overpower this wrestler. And instead, he clings to him, clings to him. Very different visual here. Why? Because for Jacob, the dislocation of his hip essentially stripped him of his strength and forced him into a position now of dependency. Here's why. In his mind, he's probably thinking, worst comes to worst with Esau, at the very least, I could run away. And he's been a man on the run. He's very used to escaping and running away. But now with his crippled hip, Jacob is utterly and entirely dependent on God because he's essentially a cripple now in the way he's going to meet Esau. So picture it, okay? Jacob has gone toe-to-toe from this man now to basically like a little kid clinging onto his parents' knees and legs, clinging on in the same way a helpless child would, begging for this man's blessing. And to put it simply, do you know what it is that makes Jacob's resistance turn to clinging? It is a moment of deep pain. That's the simplest way to put it. I personally haven't dislocated anything, nor do I want to, but I have seen people who have. I have heard of people who have, and I know it is not fun. I hear it's extremely, extremely painful. So why does God do this? That's messed up. Why does he do this, and what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn, and I think this is scripturally attested. God will often lovingly wound and break his people in order to get their attention. And it's interesting that God chose to dislocate the hip of all places because the hip is commonly understood to be one of the most important and strongest parts of the body. And so what can we deduce from that? God will often break us by wounding us by the very thing that gives us the most sense of strength and power. He targets that area. And that area can be different for everyone. For some, it could be in your jobs and your careers where you just feel that's my MO. That's where I feel strongest. So others, it can be in your finances and wealth. Hey, I got a rock solid retirement plan. For some, it could be in your family. My family, despite everything else, at least I got my family or relationships, my spouse or my boyfriend or girlfriend, or at least my crew and my friend group. Or I think for a lot of us in our church, it is simply the almost unwarranted amount of faith that a lot of our church people have in your future plans and dreams, that things are just going to play out the way you think they're going to play out. Let me ask you, have any of you experienced a dislocation of sorts in your life? Maybe your plans and dreams didn't play out the way that you thought they had or hope they would. Maybe a certain relationship or job that you were banking on fell through. And if any of you say, no, I've never experienced that. I don't know where you've been this past year because the whole world did. (laughs) There's a global pandemic. And whatever the case, what we learn from our text is that God will at times lovingly dislocate our areas of strength and self-sufficiency in order to draw us closer to him, to alter our posture from resistance into desperation or clinging. Famous preacher put it this way. He says, do you see that in order to have Jacob's heart, God was more than willing to dislocate Jacob's hip? This is where Jacob's understanding and relationship with God changes drastically. One of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, wrote a very, very good book called Religious Affections. I do not recommend it to you because it is boring and long. So let me summarize it for you in a sentence. He basically tackles the question of how do I know I'm a genuine Christian? And I think a lot of people are asking that in this season. He tackles the question of how, how do you know the difference between a nominal Christian and a real Christian? Because he wrestled with that himself. 
And a nominal Christian, if I could put simply as someone who believes things about God versus a genuine Christian as someone who actually knows and loves God. And he basically asserts that, you know, the nominal Christian, they will talk to God. They will negotiate with God. They will even go to God, but ultimately in order to get what they want. And up to this point in Jacob's life, he clearly fits that description because, yes, Jacob does talk to God. He does go to God. In fact, even recently, he even prayed to God. But what he's asking for is for God to bless him in the things that he wants. Things like, can you protect me? Can you keep me safe? Can you keep my family secure? Can you increase my wealth? And he even negotiates with God saying, hey, let's make a deal. He barters and said, if you, if you pull through for me, God, I'll serve you. Now, how many of us subconsciously do that? But through this wrestling match, it finally clicks for Jacob, 90-plus-year-old Jacob, that the blessing that Jacob has been looking for all his life are not in the things that God can get him, but rather in God himself. This is a profound truth that you can't just put in your pocket. It is something that God needs to massage and wrestle into your heart. Because I'm pretty sure most of you have heard that before, but it doesn't mean anything to you yet. And so the crucial shift that needs to happen as we are broken in as Christians is the shift from seeing nominal Christians is you see God as useful versus a genuine Christian. You now see God as beautiful. God is useful versus God is wonderful. God is a source of blessings versus God as the blessing. Fundamentally different. And God will show up in your life to wrestle with you in order for you to understand this. And I think some of us have areas in our life where if we really think about it and maybe take even just 10 minutes of alone silence, you're probably wrestling with God. If you're a true Christian here today and the Holy Spirit is residing within you, more than likely you're wrestling with God. It may be over a certain relationship that you know is not pleasing to him. And you're just your attention and odds with God and you just kind of put in the back burner. It could be over a broken relationship like Esau and Jacob that God is constantly poking at you to reconcile, to reconcile because he's I've forgiven you. You must now forgive them. And you're just thinking and justifying. Well, no, God, I don't have to. And you're wrestling. You're wrestling. Or maybe it might be simply over COVID. You've developed a sinful, habitual lifestyle. Or maybe you're just selfish now, and you just don't think about considering God and his word. It's just not important to you anymore, and it doesn't affect you at all to say, I don't care what God thinks, or I don't care what God says. You're wrestling with God if you're a true Christian. You're fighting him. You're resisting him. And whatever it might be, the path to spiritual renewal happens when our wrestling with God turns from resistance to clinging, from self-sufficiency to dependency. And here's the scary but sober truth. Get this, church. We can either humble ourselves, or as we see in our text today, God will graciously humble you out of his love. If you're truly his child, one time, one way or another, he's going to find you and he's going to humble you. And that's not a scary thing. That's what any loving disciplinary father would do, and which leads to the third point. Embrace our spiritual limbs as God's blessing. So something interesting that I've observed, I've talked to many Christians and more recently, you know, Pastor Tom and I, we've been doing like nonstop interviews with people. And like I mentioned last week, we always ask about the testimony. And one thing that's interesting is that similar to Jacob, uh, there seems to always be two very significant moments in people's spiritual walk. 
particularly if they've been Christian for a longer time or they've lived a longer life. The first is like Jacob's Bethel moment, which is where his eyes are first open to the reality of the gospel and they accept Christ. And for a lot of people, that's like, you know, back in second grade, I had my Bethel moment where God opened my eyes and I heard the gospel and, you know, I believed or some of us is at a, at a retreat or whatever it might be. So we kind of have our Bethel moment, but there's usually this second significant moment where like Jacob, they usually share, you know, I heard the gospel and I believed back then, but in high school or in college or recently, God really broke me and he really humbled me. And he made me realize not just the news of the gospel, but my need for the gospel. Very different. And most Christians I know have at least one form of a spiritual limp that they walk with. Now, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, let me kind of give a loose analogy from sharing my own experience of what this looked like in my life. Um, so I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid, if you don't know. And my source of identity or sufficiency or my spiritual hip, if I can put it that way, was my family. My family was always known as seen as the ideal Korean Christian family, right? In a culture, in a world where PKs were all messed up and there was all this kind of like hypocrisy being thrown around in the Korean church. We were always that family with the three kids that were relatively obedient. We all had biblical names, right? Samuel, Daniel, and my sister, the most biblical of them all, Shalom, right? That's literally like peace, right? In Hebrew. And we took a lot of pride and joy in being a bay, right? And there was a season where I would proudly wear this badge of being Pastor Bay's son. So I would walk around church and people like, oh, dude, that's Pastor Bay's son. I'd be like, yes, I am. Yes, I am Pastor Bay's son. Yes, I am a good boy. And I would literally do that. And we weren't super rich or anything. We weren't well off. But I would definitely say there was very little reason for us to complain. We were comfortable in life. My dad had a very, very long tenure in ministry. And we had a decent house that we were paying off. And I think all these factors made us enjoy and appreciate God's blessings far above God himself. Again, we're a pastor's family. It's not like we didn't know the gospel. In fact, during that time, both me and my brother were both pastors. And my sister was thinking of becoming a missionary. So if anything, we were all not only knowing the gospel, we were teaching the gospel. But underneath it all, the main issue was I don't think we all truly needed the gospel. We knew it. We were teaching it, but we didn't need it. And that's where the wrestling God of Jacob graciously entered the picture and rocked my life and my family's life by an extension. So while I was in college, to make a long story short, God dislocated my source of strength because it came to light. I mean, I don't want to trivialize it. I just don't have time to get into much detail. But it came to light that my dad, the, the anchor and the rock of our hip of a family, it came to light that he had actually committed a pretty, pretty serious sin. It came, out, came to light very, very publicly. And our little comfortable bubble absolutely shattered. And so literally in a hundred to zero way, pretty soon after, my badge of honor and pride ident proud identity of being Pastor Bay's son immediately became more like a scarlet letter. It became like a source of shame and anxiety. I did not want people to know my identity. I didn't want people to associate with me with my family. And I remember I had these deep insecurities that would flare up anytime anyone would talk about my dad or my family, even with my closest friends. Obviously, there's a lot of details that I didn't share, but during that time, I was so angry with God. I was so angry with my dad that he would allow that to happen to my family. But you know what ended up happening was 
that anger and, and resistance immediately quickly turned to this deep clinging to God that I can't really describe other than I felt very desperate that God and the gospel were not just something we teach, but something that's really real now because <laughs> we actually needed it. We actually needed the forgiveness that the gospel talked about, that we taught about. We actually needed the grace of God that the gospel preached about. And so only by the limp that God created through this situation did I realize that, man, the source of my identity, my family that I'd clung to for so long, it was actually inhibiting and preventing me from drawing near to God. Prior to this spiritual limp, I honestly thought, man, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a good kid. I thought my dad was immune to sin. And though I wouldn't ever say it, I actually dared to think I was a help to God, that I'm, I'm better than other Christians. Look at my track record. Look how spiritually good I am. And that's where after this limp, I realized, man, God does not need me. God does not need any of us. We need God. And man, the moment my family went from gospel resistance with our good works of all things to gospel dependence, I might have shared this before. I'll never forget this moment. This was kind of our, you know, Ford of Jabbok moment, if I can put it that way was when we all sat in our living room and we just sang praise songs together. We preached our need for the gospel to each other, that we have to forgive, that we need to love, that we need to pursue Christ. We have to be more charitable. We have to be gracious to those who are struggling because any of us could fall. And what we see from the rest of our text is that it is only when God wrestles you down in his grace to the place of humility and desperation for him that now you are primed and ready to be blessed. A lot of us want the shortcut. After realizing that Jacob is determined to cling to him. So Jacob now, it's not bartering. It's not negotiation. Jacob literally is like life or death. I'm not leaving until you bless me. Man, when's the last time you prayed like that to God? God, I need you to show up. I need you to bless me. I'm not going anywhere. Man, some of us don't even show up for like a minute, right? And that's a whole other uh, thing, the burden on my heart for me personally, too, which is we just don't pray anymore these days. Uh, I think that's something that clearly is an application from this text. But after realizing that Jacob, he's for real now, in verse 27, the man says something interesting. He says, what's your name? What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, that might seem like a random question for us, but for them, the ancients, the name represented who you are in the same way that I was kind of loosely saying, well, my name was Pastor Bay's kid. Jacob, his name is his confession. And so what God is doing here is he is forcing Jacob to confess and admit his sins and his insecurities, because you know what Jacob means? It means deceiver. What a terrible name to be named. Deceiver, cheater, heel grabber. And essentially for his entire life prior to this moment, Jacob did everything within his power to cover up the identity of his name. Why? He went as far as to pretend that he's someone that he's not in his brother Esau. He tries to work his way to a favor from people. But now we see in his brokenness that he sees himself for who he really is because his name is his confession. He's a deceiver. And I think we all are to a certain extent. And it's important to know that before God can truly bless us, he first wrestles our resistance into dependency, like I've been saying, and he will graciously force us to confess and confront our true self. And it is then and only then that the gospel will then rush in and we will be able to fully embrace our new identity in Christ. In verse 28, he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And by changing Jacob's name, he essentially gives him a new identity. 
More importantly, back then, name changing was also a way to exercise authority over an individual. And so what's interesting is that God says Jacob prevailed in his wrestling with God. And here's where I just say very quickly, I, this is a very profound statement that we can't really get into. But every commentator will say it's interesting that God says Jacob prevailed, a.k.a. Jacob won, because we all know Jacob didn't win. He lost. He submitted. He surrendered. And that's the point. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, the way that you win with God is you got to lose. You have to lose to him. You need to surrender. That's how you win. You are not going to overpower God. You are not stronger than God. And God, if he really loves you, he's going to keep pressing in. He's going to keep poking your hip. He's going to keep wrestling you down until like Jacob, you finally say, all right, I surrender. And verse 31 gives the implication that since that moment, Jacob lived his whole life with that limp. And while it's easy to see that limp as a curse, you can bet that Jacob with his paradigm now understands that limp is a gracious blessing and reminder of God's intervention in his life in the same way that mine was for me. And to close, you know, I'm sure a lot of us have limps. Uh, I, the more I get to know people, we hide them well. Some are more visible than others, but maybe your limp is a, a broken family or a broken marriage, a difficult circumstance and, or maybe it's just an identity that you didn't choose that you're born into. Single parent, no parent, you know, step parent, whatever it is that you might feel ashamed of, your own version of a limp. Maybe it's a bad breakup. It's crazy. I mean, I don't want to trivialize. So many people tell me that a really bad breakup is what God uses to get them to wake up. Or maybe it's a season of depression. It could be any of those things. And I'm pretty sure at least someone in here can relate to one of those things can i encourage you if you feel or have a limp to take heart because what this story shows it's a god of jacob works through limps so if you're working and living with a spiritual limp it means god's not done with you he is at work in your life to bless you and to renew your relationship with him let's pray together